Well, as we begin this morning, I'd like to read for you a story about a man named Polycarp. It's taken uh, straight from uh, the website uh, called Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but uh, follow along as I read this. An elderly man in his 80s sitting at a table eating dinner, Polycarp knew his life was in danger. A group of Christians had just been executed in the arena on account of their faith, but Polycarp refused to leave Rome. The Romans were executing any self-proclaimed Christians and pagans were betraying those they knew to be followers of the way. After the recent executions, the crowd in the arena had chanted for Polycarp's death. A renowned follower of Christ and bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp had become a Christian under the tutelage of of John the Apostle. Recently, the Roman proconsul had been looking for him for days. After arresting and torturing one of Polycarp's servants, they finally learned where he was staying. Their soldiers came into the house, but instead of fleeing, Polycarp calmly stated, God's will be done. Polycarp asked that food be brought for the soldiers, and he requested an hour for prayer. Amazed by Polycarp's fearlessness, especially for a man his age, the hardened Roman soldiers granted his request. He prayed for two hours for all the Christians he knew and for the universal church, and the soldiers let him. As Polycarp entered the stadium, several Christians present heard a voice from heaven say, Be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. Because of his age, the Roman proconsul gave Polycarp a final chance to live. He just had to swear by Caesar and say, take away the atheists. At that time, Christians were called atheists for refusing to worship the Greek and Roman gods. Polycarp looked at the Roman crowds. He gestured to them and said, take away the atheists. The proconsul continued, swear and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly declared, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged him again, swear by the fortune of Caesar. But Polycarp replied, since you vainly think that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar as you say and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. But it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire. But he responded, you threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. Finally, the proconsul sent a herald to the middle of the stadium to announce that Polycarp was confessing his faith as a Christian. The crowd shouted for Philip the Asiarch to send a lion against Polycarp, but he refused. Then they shouted for Polycarp to be burned. They moved him to the marketplace and prepared the pyre. Polycarp undressed and climbed up. But when they were going to nail him to the pyre, he told them, leave me like this. He who gives me to endure the fire will also give me to remain on the pyre without your security from the nails. So they did not nail him, but tied him up. Bravely, Polycarp prayed as the soldiers prepared the wood, O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, God of angels and powers in all creation and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I bless you 
that you considered me worthy of this day and hour to receive a part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ for the resurrection to eternal life both of soul and of body in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be welcomed before you today by a fat and acceptable sacrifice just as you previously prepared and made known and you fulfilled the deceitless and true God. Because of this and for all things I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit both now and for ages to come. Amen. The Romans had threatened Polycarp with beasts and fire, but nothing would make him turn against Christ. After his prayer, the men lit the pyre, which sprang up quickly, but even the fire wouldn't touch him as it formed an arch around Polycarp's body. The Romans didn't know what to make of this. In the end, the Romans commanded an executioner to stab him. A great quantity of blood put out the remaining fire, and Polycarp bled to death. Well, this morning we'll be opening up to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It's the letter to the church in Smyrna. The story you just heard of that church father named Polycarp took place in Smyrna sometime after John had written the book of Revelation. And as you heard, Polycarp likely came to faith under the Apostle John, the same John who received this vision from the Lord and ultimately wrote the book of Revelation. And this morning's passage, we're going to see Jesus encourage a church that is being afflicted and is in poverty, but is yet rich. A people who are being slandered by those who say they are Jews and should be brothers in Christ. A group who will be thrown into prison and some, like Polycarp, who will be called to be faithful to Jesus to the point of death. But amidst all this suffering and difficulty stands Jesus. Let's read the text together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Well, Smyrna was a beautiful port city off the Aegean Sea that was located on the site of what is modern-day Izmir in the country of Turkey. The city claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, who you may be familiar with. He wrote epic poems like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And was uh, the city was in many ways a cultural hub. It boasted an enormous stadium, a huge library, and the largest public theater in all of Asia. Ancient coins described Smyrna as first of Asia in beauty and size. While that city was beautiful, it was also deeply entrenched in idolatry. It had a temple on either end of the city. One was dedicated to a local goddess named Cybele, and the other to the Greek god Zeus. Further, it was the first city in the ancient world to build a temple in honor of Dea Roma, 
a goddess who represented the worship, specifically of the capital city of Rome, but more broadly to the idea of the whole Roman Empire. Dea Roma proclaimed the glory of the Roman Empire. A few hundred years after they became the first city to build a temple uh, to Dea Roma, they also won permission over 10 other cities to build a temple in honor of the emperor Tiberius. Well, the Roman Empire, as you may remember, didn't like Christians very much at all, right? Followers of Jesus were a threat to the allegiance demanded by Roman leadership, and in their eyes, this Jesus had come to overthrow their entire political regime. The city of Smyrna strongly tied themselves to the Roman Empire. They were sort of all in on being part of Rome. Well, not only that, but there was an enormous Jewish population in the city. And again, you may remember that Jews often didn't take too kindly to Christians. They had rejected, many of them had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and were actively hostile toward believers. So, Smyrna was not a great place to be a Christian in the first or second century, right? Christians were persecuted, and they struggled financially, they struggled socially, they were slandered, they were assaulted, and they were murdered for their faith. We just heard the story of Polycarp, who was perhaps the most famous martyr of the early church fathers, but while he may have been the most famous, he was far from the only martyr in Smyrna, So with all that in mind, as we walk through our text this morning, we're going to ask three questions. First, who is Jesus, according to this text? Second, what does Jesus tell the church at Smyrna? And finally, what are we supposed to do with all of this? So first, who is Jesus? Let's look back at verse 8 and read that one more time. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. As is the pattern, the letter given to the angel of the church begins with an introductory statement about Jesus taken from the broader introduction in all of chapter 1 and specifically chosen for the sake of that church that this letter was written to. So how does Jesus identify himself to the church suffering persecution and being told to remain faithful even to the point of death? Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Wrapped up in this statement is a profound truth about Jesus that carries through all of Scripture. He is sovereign. He's sovereign. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning of all things and the end of all things. He was present and active in creation. He spoke things into existence, and he will sit on his throne in eternity, reigning forever and ever through the end of days. But deeper than that, deeper than Jesus' sovereignty, Jesus is life. In Jesus is life. See, the gods that were worshipped in Smyrna and throughout the Roman Empire were dead. They were statues, they were ideas. This idea of the grand Roman Empire was worshipped. They were myths and legends and they were carved out of stone and out of gold. But Jesus isn't like that. In Jesus is a stark contrast to the gods of the Roman Empire. He is not dead, but alive. 
He's alive. We read about this and we read about this right in John chapter 1. We talked about it at Christmas time. John chapter 1 says that all things were created through him and in him was life. All of scripture attests to this reality. False gods can't bring life. Only death. Only death. Right? And all too often, we're not so different from the citizens of Smyrna. We don't worship the same types of carved gods, right? At least not usually. But we do worship things like success and money and images on screens and praise from people. And all of that will kill you. All of it will kill you, just like the gods that the Romans worshipped. They've got no power to deliver you from sin and raise you from death to life. But Jesus does. In him is life. Not only is Jesus reminding his people that in he and he alone is life found, he's reminding them again that he is God. He is God. He is the first and the last, it says, and he is alive. This is an allusion to one of God's titles that's found all throughout scripture, the living God. God is called the living God throughout the Old and New Testaments in places like Joshua and the book of Psalms and Matthew and Acts and Romans and more. All throughout scripture, he's called the living God. Jesus is the one true God. Not these idols, not the pagan things that are prayed to, not the superstitions that the church at Smyrna and the Roman Empire and sometimes us today were and are tempted by. Those things don't matter. They don't matter. They're powerless. But Jesus is the first and the last. He is the living God. He was dead and brought to life and he reigns in glory. Scripture says that the whole earth is his footstool. Everything we see, it's a footstool for this glorious king. And he's coming again to rescue his people. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. And at his name, every creature in and under heaven ought to tremble in awe and worship. That's the opener for Smyrna. That's how Jesus introduces himself. He says, I am Jesus. I am the first and the last. I was dead, but death couldn't hold me down. I am alive. He is the first and the last. He was dead, but has been brought to life. With that in mind, what does Jesus have to say to the church in Smyrna? Jesus, who suffered a brutal death on a cross and rose again and is today alive, says, starting in verse 9, I am aware of your affliction, or your suffering, your persecution, your hardship, and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander that those who claim to be Jews speak of you, and don't be afraid. You're about to suffer, to be thrown into prison, to be tested, and you're going to experience some rough things, maybe even to the point of death. Remain faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. The church of Smyrna was suffering greatly, as we talked about, right? They can't get jobs. They can't get food. They're slandered. They're betrayed by those who should be brothers and sisters, and they may be thrown in prison and end up on death row. But Jesus says, I see you. 
I'm with you. I know what you're going through. I went through it too. But remember who I am and know I've got you. Don't be afraid. It can so easily seem like Jesus is offering empty platitudes here, right? In this identification and encouragement of what's going on. But it's anything but empty platitudes. See, even though the world seemed to be falling apart around these believers, Jesus was calling them to take hope in something greater, in someone greater, in himself. Jesus had gone through what they were. In fact, in John chapter 15, he assured his disciples that persecution would come. He said, if they hated me, and they did, then surely they will hate you who follow me. Jesus knew persecution would come. Jesus went through everything they went through and more. And he arose victorious over death. And according to chapter 1, where this uh, first part is taken from, he tells us that he holds the keys of death and Hades. Jesus conquered death completely. The encouragement of Jesus to the church in Smyrna is rooted in his authority over every square inch of everything, right? Death couldn't hold him down. Hades couldn't overcome him. Satan tried to tempt him. You remember uh, when, he, when he first started his public ministry, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan threw everything he could at him. And Jesus never wavered. He has authority and power and majesty and glory beyond anything we can even begin to comprehend. And he says, that one says, don't be afraid. Persevere. I've got you. In the end, I will give you the crown of life. Well, plenty of things offer to give us life, right? If we had a little brainstorm session here off the top of our heads, we could think of hundreds of things that we experience that promise to give us life. But only one thing, only one person, only one God actually has the power to give the crown of life, to write your name in the book of life, to bear the penalty for your sin and to set you free and to follow through on the promises that he makes in verses 10 and 11 when he says, be faithful to the point of death and I will grant you the crown of life. And then he says, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Those are some big promises, right? Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, if you're faithful to the end, I will grant you the crown of life. You'll live with me forever in perfect paradise, in the new heaven and the new earth where everything will be made right and good and true and there will be no more suffering and crying and shame and pain and struggle and difficulty. And he says the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. You may die in your flesh. They can hurt you and they can break your body and they can end your life. But Jesus says not forever. Not forever. In eternity, He says, the one who conquers will never be touched by the second death. And all of that, church, is why Jesus can make the statement that he does in verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. Believers in Smyrna would suffer and die for their faith. They would struggle for their whole lives in their own city as they worked for the glory of God and sought to show others his unfathomable goodness. 
right? Some of them would live out all of their days until old age in struggle. And others would end up like Polycarp, martyred for proclaiming Jesus, not Caesar, as Lord. But when they died, they'd behold the face of Jesus, their tender Savior, who walked with them through each day that they suffered, who felt their pain as his own, and who went to a cross to redeem them, even though at times they were unfaithful to him. The people of Smyrna suffered and had few earthly possessions, but brothers and sisters, in God's economy, those believers were beyond wealthy, or beyond wealthy. Well, that's great, right? All of that was written to Smyrna some 2,000 years ago, but what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, three things, and then we'll call it a day. First, place your trust in Jesus Christ. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, they will never be harmed by the second death. The one who conquers. Who is the one who conquers? Well, who is the only one who has ever been faithful from beginning to end? Who is the only one who walked out their days fully faithful to the Father, sinless, and endured death? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has conquered. But he's invited you over and over and over again throughout the scriptures to accept what he did on your behalf. If you place your trust in him, if you call on his name, if you repent and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus conquering is extended to you. When the Father looks upon you, he will no longer see you in your brokenness and in your shame and in your sin, but he'll see you as his son or as his daughter washed whiter than snow by the shed blood of our precious Jesus. And in eternity, death will not touch you. Place your trust in Jesus and you will not regret it for a single day of your life. You will never regret the decision to follow Jesus. But if you place your trust in something else to save you, you will regret that decision for all of eternity. Place your trust in Jesus Make today the day if you haven't done that. Number two, prepare yourself for suffering. Look, we've got it uh, really good in America, right? We don't experience persecution for our faith in a way that even remotely scratches the surface compared to what we're talking about in Smyrna. Yes, in one sense, all Christians everywhere experience persecution because the world sees the gospel as foolishness, right? It's some sort of weakness to trust in Jesus or it's a superstition or something like that. The world, the world doesn't get it, right? There are some times that we have some inconveniences that we experience because of our faith, right? Our, our friends might not understand why we do things the way we do and well, they might not get it when we abstain from certain immoral behaviors and things can get a little awkward at family gatherings around the dinner table when you're with family members who don't believe. Right? You could be passed over at work for a promotion because you've been outspoken about your faith and your boss didn't like it. Those things happen. 
And I'm not standing up here to try and downplay them or say that they don't. That's real and that's hard and it happens because of your faith in Jesus Christ. But we don't have to fear for our lives because we trust Jesus and claim him as Lord. And we don't claim our president or something like that as Lord, right? We can gather as we are right now in this room in a huge group of people. We can sing praise songs and we confess Jesus and we can preach the word and we're not really worried about local authorities coming in and busting down the doors and arresting all of us and putting us on death row. Could that come to America someday? Sure. It absolutely could. All right, and so in the meantime, prepare yourself for suffering. Prepare yourself for suffering. How? By tethering yourself to Jesus. By getting to know him so intimately that when the time comes and your choice is to either deny him or claim him as your king, you'll do so without any hesitation. Another way, uh, persecution doesn't happen too harshly in America, right? We're not, we're not afraid for our lives here, but uh, you might need to prepare because there's another reason, right? God may call you to the mission field. Maybe you're young and you're looking at your life and you're thinking, what do I want to do with this next 50 or 60, 70, 80 years I have? Maybe the Spirit's tugging on your heart and saying, go abroad. Go serve me. Go take the gospel to a group that has never heard it before, an unreached people group. Or maybe you're not so young. Maybe you're approaching retirement or you're thinking about your second career or you're thinking about what am I going to do with the time I have left. I don't just want to spend it you know, on the beach. I want to do something meaningful. Maybe the Spirit's going to call you into missions and call you to go somewhere and proclaim the gospel boldly. And if you do that, you'll need to be prepared to experience difficulty. How can you do that? How can you prepare yourself for suffering? Well, you already know. We talk about this so often. First, spend time reading God's word. Get to know him through his word. And don't blow this off because here goes Chris again telling me I need to read my Bible. Right? We talk about this a lot. Because you do need to read your Bible. The Bible is the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. It's alive. He, he interacts with us through his word. And I promise you, if you start reading God's word or listening to it in an audiobook, if you're not that much of a reader, if you start doing that on a regular basis, four, five, six, seven times a week, it will impact you. You'll see things in God's word before that you didn't see and, and the spirit will start to change you and shape how you look at the world and how you look at other people and how you think about the relationships in your life and how you think about who God is and what he wants from you and how you experience him. Spend time in his word and he will meet you there. Second, spend time in prayer. Spend time talking to God, praying his word back to him, just sitting in his presence. And I get it, that can be overwhelming if you don't know how to pray or you don't have a lot of experience praying or even if you do. Going before God in heaven in prayer can be a hard thing. But God wants to interact with you there. You can talk to him however you want. You can come to prayer with a good attitude or a bad attitude. Right? You can come knowing all the words you should say or not knowing what to say at all. But God promises that we have the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf. So just go and sit in his presence and build a relationship with him. Develop intimacy with God in conversation. 
And finally, spend time with other believers, encouraging one another in fellowship, praying for one another, spending time trying to understand God's word together more fully. God meets us in those places. And by doing those things, by practicing these spiritual habits and disciplines, you're putting on the armor of God and preparing yourself for when a day comes, whether here or you're called elsewhere, and you experience persecution like the church in Smyrna. Third, and finally, we can pray for and encourage Christians around the world. We just talked about it. We're so fortunate in the United States to not have to worry about extreme persecution, right? We have the freedom of religion built right into our constitution. This is not the norm. It is not the norm. As you know, the Olympics, right, this amazing celebration of human athletic and mental achievement and drive and striving and all that are taking place in China right now, right? It's this incredible world-uniting event. But our brothers and sisters are suffering greatly in China. Voice of the Martyrs, that that, uh, site that I talked about at the beginning, you can find them at persecution.org. They're an organization uh, that details the stories of many believers around the world who are suffering. That's their whole uh, purpose, is to tell the stories of suffering Christians around the world. Well, they talk about those believers in China uh, on their site as well. They say that churches in China are illegal. More than 170 million facial recognition devices have been installed all over the provinces of China, many near churches or inside churches, in an effort to identify who attends those worship services. Hundreds of churches have been forced to close. Pastors and church members have been arrested or detained, and the online sale of Bibles is prohibited. The person of persecution of Christians, they say, in China is today the worst it's been since the 60s and 70s. Communist ideology is enforced through digital surveillance and every Chinese person is required to install an app on their phone that keeps track of what they're looking at and their movement throughout the country. Even online churches face difficulty, right? You think, well, they can get around it by doing Zoom church or whatever. Well, those groups are required to register and be approved by local authorities, and if they don't and they get caught, there's big consequences. And Bible apps are forbidden. You can't have a Bible app on your phone. That kind of experience is not unusual around the globe. We in the West are the odd ones out. We experience enormous freedom to worship whenever and wherever and however and whoever we want. So, how can we help? How can we help? We can help by supporting our brothers and sisters across the globe. We do this a little bit as a, as a church family. Crossview Church, that's you all and your generosity, support 16 different missionaries. 11 of them are international, and two of them are in locations that are so dangerous that we can't tell you their real names. Because if we do, and someone sees it on stream and they're identified, it could lead to some really, really bad things for them. If you want to support missionaries around the world, you've got a couple of options, right? You can support them financially. You could contact the office and say, hey, God's tugging on my heart, and I really want to start giving individually to a missionary. Can you connect me with someone, and I can talk to them about how I can support them? They would love that. So if God's 
pulling on your heart to do that, reach out to the office this week. We'll be happy to connect you with missionaries who need it. Or if you know a missionary personally, one that Crossview doesn't support, reach out. Ask them, how can I support you? How can I give to what you're doing for the sake of the gospel? Or maybe you're not in a spot to give financially. That's okay. You can pray. You can pray. And not just for missionaries, though they certainly need it, but for the persecuted church at large around the globe. Believers around the world are suffering many of the same things the church in Smyrna did. They struggle financially and socially, and they're persecuted and attacked and even killed. And when we lift them before the throne of God, it matters. It matters. God hears and he cares and he has compassion and he meets those believers where they are. Over and over and over and over again. Scripture tells us that when we pray, God moves. When we pray, God moves. So lift your brothers and sisters around the world up in prayer. Well, facing imminent death by a wild animal or a pyre of fire or the sword of an executioner, Polycarp was called upon to suffer in the name of Jesus. He could have caved, right? He could have caved pretty easily. He could have confessed Caesar as Lord and walked away from the arena that day. Instead, he boldly declared, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Moments later, Polycarp saw his savior face to face. Friends, Jesus will walk with you when persecution comes. He is the first and the last. He was dead, but he has been made alive. And when he promises to give you the crown of life, if you trust in him, you can be sure that he will keep his promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You have been faithful as we look throughout history, and you're faithful now. Lord, we thank you for the chance to gather in a place where we don't experience persecution like we read about. Lord, but we recognize that there are believers around the world who are suffering greatly this morning, who desire so deeply to gather together and sing songs of praise to you and hear your word proclaimed and open up your word together. God, we lift them before you. We ask that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them in the faith. We thank you for the ways that you're using them to boldly proclaim the gospel where you've placed them. God, we ask that you would help them to endure whatever trials may come their way. Lord, and we're so grateful for the promise that if they confess Jesus as Lord, that they will have the crown of life, that their name will be written in the book of life and in eternity, the second death will never touch them. Lord, we're We're so grateful for who you are. We're thankful that you're faithful and we can trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.